Well, again, it's a, a pleasure to be here on Easter Sunday to celebrate. And uh, what I often think is the, the beauty and the joy and the irony of the cross, that through death we have life. And, um, you know, we, we lost a dear sister this week. And uh, as I had a chance to spend a little bit of time with her before she passed and spending some time with, with Rick, you know, it's, it's the same thing, uh, that the death of our Savior has given life to Christine, and she was not without hope, and she was not without joy. And uh, we celebrate the resurrected Savior, because a resurrected Savior means a resurrected life for each and every one of us who believe. And so to that, we give, we give praise. Well, you might have gotten a letter back in the 80s, uh, a letter from a Nigerian prince. Some of you might have received one of those. And then with the onset of the internet in the 90s, the Nigerian prince turned into a Russian tycoon, an American soldier, or perhaps a friend that was stranded across the country. Uh, and it was a very simple scam. And the idea was that uh, if you gave a little bit of money, the promise would be that when things turned around, they would be able to offer some more money in return. Uh, and that scam actually got started back after the French Revolution. So the, the scam was that an individual had become a political prisoner of the French Revolution. They had to dump a bunch of money into a lake. And the promise was that if they could get some money to be bailed out of jail, they would be able to go back into that lake, get the treasure, and then you would receive some more in return. And so letters were sent out throughout France uh, asking for money for a political prisoner that was never actually existed. So we've become very wary of scams, scams all through, especially now through the internet. Well, I had gotten an email back when we were in our townhome uh, and somebody said, hey, you are entitled to some money. And of course, right away, I'm thinking this is ridiculous, but for some reason, I decided, let me look into this email. And so there was a number to call, and I called, and I actually got a person on the other end. And I said, hey, I just saw the email you sent. I'm just trying to understand what this is all about. It says I'm supposed to get some money. And so he said, yes. He said, you actually, I've been trying to follow up with people, and you've been owed a, a series of money here for a while, and uh, I'm just waiting to get confirmation so you can collect on it. And I'm like, well, you have to understand, I, I'm pretty skeptical. And I even told the guy that. I said, listen, this sounds like a scam to me. Uh, I said, you know, like, what's the deal here? And he said, listen, he said, I do this for a living. He, he said, my job is to make sure that people get back their money when people refinance or, or do things with home mortgages. He said, I'm actually the last kind of line of defense or hope for people to get their money back. It had been almost a year since Chris and I had refinanced our home. And I, I said, well, what's, what's the catch here? What, what's the deal? He said, there's no catch. He said, the way that you're talking right now is the way that everybody responds to me. Everybody's skeptical. Everyone thinks this is a scam. He said, I can tell you, honest the truth. He said, this is not a scam. And I said, well, what do you need? He said, all I need is confirmation that you still live at the address that you do. And I said, that's it. 
I said, I don't have to give you my bank account or anything. He said, no, sir, you don't have to give your bank account. I just have to confirm that you are Adam LaRue. This is your information. You know, this is your birth date. I said, yes, that's my birth date. He said, and you, you live at this address? I said, yes, I live at this address. And he said, that's all I need. He said, you should get a check from us in about a week. And I was like, that's it. And he said, that's it. That's all I needed to do. And I was like, well, you know what? What's it matter? Because if a check doesn't show up, I didn't give out any bank account. I didn't give out anything else. Uh, so I waited. And guess what? A week later went by. And you know what happened? I got a check. I got a check for $1,400. It blew my mind. I could not believe that this random person on the internet sent me an email that for some reason I decided to connect with, called, and he actually gave me a check for $1,400. Now, I, this, is, this is not a message where you should all start checking your scam emails. Please understand that. <laughs> I highly advise against that. This was a miracle in the grace of God that this worked out. But, but this was something that I had to see to believe, right? And, and, and as we've been going through the sermon series, we talked last week about the resurrection, right? There were some skeptical disciples that did not think that Jesus was going to rise again. It was something that they had to see to believe for themselves. And so we, we talked through a series of proofs that gave validity to the resurrection, that this is actually more likely that it historically happened than not. And that's where our hope and our faith rests on, is a resurrected Savior. Now, for all of those that believed, we still have one individual whose heart is still a little hardened to this idea. Uh, and for as much as believing in this wonderful gift, Thomas is still struggling. He's still struggling with the unbelief that his Savior has actually risen from the dead. And he actually is going to put a little condition on Jesus in order for him to believe this. And so as we, again, celebrate this season, as we've go, been going through the book of John, again, we've been saying how Jesus committed himself to his disciples. He committed himself to this purpose, to this, to this message, to this hope. And then he prayed for his disciples, and then he went on trial, and then he went to the cross, and he rose again three days later. But Jesus is not done in his commitments. He still has a commitment here to Thomas. So if you don't know much about Thomas, let me give you a little bit of information here. Uh, if we look at all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all we know about Thomas was that he was included in the list of disciples. That's it. We know nothing else about him. John here gives us a little bit more information. Uh, when Jesus is told that Lazarus has died and, and Jesus wants to go back to him, uh, the, the, the disciples say, why do you want to do that, Jesus? Why do you want to go back to a place where they tried to kill you? And it is Thomas who says, let us also go that we may die with him. Pretty profound statement. And then later, as Jesus is talking and he's trying to explain what's going to happen and comfort his disciples, and he, he's talking about he's going to go to a place and prepare a room for them, all the disciples are confused that it's Thomas who says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? 
And Jesus responds, I, I am the way and I am the truth and the life. And then in the book of Acts, as they look for someone to replace Judas, we're told that Thomas is there. So that is the extent that the Bible offers about who Thomas is. But we have to understand in these five verses about Thomas, we get one of the most profound messages of the gospel. And we have to understand, too, it seems rather odd that Thomas only has such a short bit of history and seems to be portrayed in such an unfavorable light. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John chapter 20. We'll going to be reading the rest of uh, the chapter here. I'm going to start in verse 24. It says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and have yet believed. So Thomas wasn't with the disciples when Jesus originally showed himself. They're excited. Well, first they're cowering in fear and Jesus shows up and, and they're excited and they can't believe it. And so they go running off and they find Thomas and they say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He is risen like he said. And Thomas says, I refuse to believe that. And they're like, Thomas, what do you mean? We've seen him. He's alive. And he says, not until I can put my fingers into his nails and put my hand into the side that was pierced by the spear will I believe. And so he puts this condition out there. And now some of us may be looking at Thomas here and thinking about him several different ways, but, but this is where we get the term doubting Thomas, right? Because he refuses to accept what the disciples told him. So some of us may look at Thomas and go, I don't understand this guy. What does he not get? He spent all those years of ministry with him. He saw all the miracles that Jesus did. How could he not understand the promise that was offered to him? How could he not understand the resurrection? Thomas, you are such a fool. You think the disciples are going to come back and lie to you about something like this? So some of us may be a little harsh on Thomas. Now, some of us may actually applaud him. Some of us may look at Thomas and go, all Thomas wanted was a reasonable faith. He wanted evidence to prove what's been told to him. Uh, what's wrong with that? I mean, I understand that our faith is that, right? It's based on faith, things that we cannot see. But even our faith has, has reliable evidence, has a solid foundation for what we can believe. So some of us actually probably look at Thomas and go, I'm with you, Thomas. You just wanted to see for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. And maybe some of us are like Thomas in the sense that 
we have put demands on God ourselves. That we are in a state of unbelief and we have said to God and we've pushed him against the wall and said, listen, God, I'm willing to believe, but first you have to prove it. You got to get me the job that I was promised. You got to make this lady fall in love with me that I want to marry. You, you got to heal me for my sickness and ailments, God. When you do that, then I will believe in you, God. Maybe some of us have been like that. But we're all somewhere on the scale. Somewhere on that scale of unbelief to belief, we're, we're on that scale of questioning and, and doubting and wondering to truly understanding who Jesus was. But the experience that Thomas gets is not like any other. Jesus shows up and meets his demands. We, we don't often get those luxuries in life. We, we don't often make a demand on God and then turn around the next day and Jesus meets that demand. Quite frankly, most of humanity actually never got what, what Thomas did. Most of us never got to put our fingers in the nails of Jesus and put our hand into his side, right? Most of us actually never have gotten to see the physical resurrection of Jesus, whether before or after. Again, most of us in all of humanity are making a decision about Jesus, a Jesus that we have never seen but have only heard about through the scriptures, But Jesus gives him an opportunity. He challenges him and he says, stop doubting and believe. Or as some translations go, stop unbelieving and believe Thomas. And what is Thomas's response to this? He says, my Lord and my God. He saw, he experienced, and he believed. And that is such a profound statement. Because when he says, my Lord, it's an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority over his life. That, that Jesus is his master and he is his servant. And when he says, my God, he's recognizing the divinity of who Christ is. He's recognizing that Christ is the creator of all world. He's the sustainer of this world. That God himself is the power that flows through this entire creation. And that it is God who is the ultimate judge of humanity. And it is God who holds up the morality and the truth for this world. And it is the understanding that God is the ultimate form of holiness in the face of Thomas's sinfulness. That's what it means when he says, my Lord and my God. Charles Spurgeon, a great theologian, expressed it this way. He said, when Thomas makes this declaration, he says it's a declaration of holy wonder, one of immeasurable delight. He said it's a complete change of mind for Thomas. It's a passionate, enthusiastic allegiance to Christ. It's an act of adoration and worship. That's what this was when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's a change of his understanding that his Lord, who was once dead, is now alive. And as I said, that what Thomas experienced was an experience for a minuscule population of all of humanity. 
But the purpose for Thomas was not just for him alone. But what Christ did there holds the same purpose for you and I. Quite frankly, the, the resurrection, his life, his death, his ministry was, was for all generations. It's for every civilization that ever walked upon the face of the earth that was and is to come. The life, death, and resurrection is for every single individual. It's, it's for the person who lives in the deepest, darkest parts of the jungle, to the coldest regions of Siberia, to the person who lives in the barren wasteland of the Sahara Desert. It's for the farmer whose neighbor is miles away, and for the city folk whose neighbors are stacked a hundred stories high. That life and death and resurrection was just as much for Thomas as it is for you and me and for everyone else that ever existed. And when Thomas came to believe, that is what Christ is desiring for you and me, that we would come to see him face to face and to believe. You know, when I was back in college, I, I took a class on the books of John. We did John, and then we did 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And I really don't remember much about the class at all. But I do remember the one, the one time. My, my professor leaned on his lectern, and he said, Guys, where, where is the culmination of the story in the book of John? Where is the climax of this story? And of course, right away, we were all like, Oh, it definitely was the cross. It was the cross, Professor. And he said, well, what do you mean, the cross? And we're like, oh, it, 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 was, it was when he was nailed, that's what it was. And he said, no, that's not it. And we're like, whoa, when it was, he was raised up. And, and, he's, and, and all the people are looking at him, and he's like, no, that's not it. We're like, I know, I know. It's when he said, it is finished. That is the culmination. And he said, that's not it either. And we're like, well, if it's not the cross, it's got to be the resurrection. And so we're like, it clearly was when the women showed up and the tomb was empty. And he said, no, that wasn't it either. And we're like, was it, was, it, was it when the disciples went in and, and, and Peter believed? And he said, no. Was it when he met the men on the road to Emmaus? And he said, no, that wasn't it either. And we're like, what is the culmination of this story? And he said, the culmination of this story was when Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And we're all like, how is that the culminating part? How could it not be the cross? How could it not be the resurrection? Why is it Thomas' statement that's the culmination of all of this? Well, here's why. If we keep reading verse 30 and 31. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. See, John says flat out right here, he says, here's the entire purpose of why I've written this gospel. Here's why I've recorded everything about what Jesus has done. So that you may believe and you may have eternal life. That is the whole purpose of the book of John. 
And I know that we started this sermon series in chapter 12. We started with this final week of ministry. But, but if we just take a moment here and we go back and we take a look at a broad scale of the book of John, this will actually make more sense to us. That this is the whole reason that John is writing this. And when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, it captures the very essence of what John wanted and what Christ wanted for you and me. You know, throughout the book, he, he makes these seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life, uh, the light of the world. All of these statements, again, go back to when Moses is at the burning bush and he says, who am I supposed to say who sent me? And he says, tell them that I am sent you. And so when Christ makes these I am statements, again, he's connecting his divinity. He's connecting himself and saying, I am God. And then in order to prove this, he then has these multiple miracles. And he says, all of these miracles are designed to convince you of exactly who I say that I am, that I am God, that I am the Messiah, that I am Lord and Savior, because all of these miracles are only things that could be done by God himself. So he uses all of these to validate these statements. And collectively, when we look at these, Again, these give us a reasonable faith to believe. It gives us a, a, an evidence that this historical Jesus was true. And therefore, if he lived and he died and came back to life, then what he said is true. Then what he means about the resurrection and about the death and the forgiveness of my sins is true and I may have eternal life. So all of this was designed to lead us to belief. And then he has all these interactions. He talks with Nicodemus. He talks with the woman at the well. He talks to the Pharisees. He talks with the 5,000 that he feeds. The, the people that are at the Feast of the Tabernacle. The man born blind. All of these conversations are conversations about eternal life. And then he also has conversations with other individuals who make their profession of faith. John the Baptist, Nathaniel. The Samaritans, we know that this man is really the savior of the world. Peter, Martha, Thomas, and even John himself says Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. So again, why? What did we just read? So that you may believe. That's why... John has written this and why Christ desires this. You know, in the New Testament, they use the word belief right around 250 times in the entire New Testament. Do you know how many times John uses the word believe? Almost 100. Almost 100 times John uses the word believe, 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 believe. And of course, in the book of John, we have some of the clearest passages about what it means to believe. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his son and his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one 
and only Son. And then later he says in verse 36 that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And in 524, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes who sent me has eternal life. And he will not be judged, but he has crossed over from death to life. Here's what I want us to understand. God loves us. God loves us so much that he sent his son to die for our sins. He bore the penalty of our sins, that which we should have paid. But he chose to step in at the cross and said, I am willing to die for you because I love you. Because you are my creation and I want to redeem you. And believing this to be true, believing that our sins are saved by the blood of Christ, we enter from death into life. But I also want to understand something here, guys. Without faith, without belief in Christ, we still stand condemned. We have not passed from death to life if we don't believe. Our sins are not paid for. Our salvation has not been had and we have not been redeemed if we choose to reject the Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you and I do not embrace the death of Christ, then his death has no value. And if his death has no value, then your debt has not been paid. And the wrath and the condemnation of God still hangs around your neck and you will face the eternal punishment of hell. Matthew 25 tells us, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In Matthew 13, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we often don't want to talk about this. We don't want to say this, especially on Resurrection Sunday. Adam, why would you say such a thing? That sounds so harsh. God is so uncaring and so unloving that he would send people to hell. But again, this is not true. Because what we have just talked about is that he stepped into our place and our punishment. He stepped in because he loved us, because he wants us to be forgiven. It is not Christ who has condemned us, but it is your rejection of a Savior that leads you to a path of eternal destruction. And that is not what Christ desires for you and me or for anybody in this world. So what do we do with this? We also go into the book of John, John 6, 25. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's gone away and they're all looking for him. And they find him later on the other side of the, the lake. And it says, when they found him on the other side, they asked, Rabbi, how, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me because you saw the signs. I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill... Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe the one he has sent. Do you notice the question that they asked Jesus? What must we do? Isn't that such a human answer? God, how do I achieve this salvation? 
God, what, what do I have to do to earn it? God, how do I obtain eternal life? And he says, look, he says, you you don't get it. He says, it's the work of God. It's the work that I have done, not you. It's the work that I have done. That's, That's how you obtain salvation. Not in of yourselves, but through the work that I've done on the cross. He says, all of history, all of the Bible, all of the stories, the miracles, all point to me as the Savior because salvation is only found through me and through me alone. So often we think, if I just show up to church a couple times a year, I should be good. So often we think, maybe if I just put a little extra money in the offering plate, God should should find favor on me. We often think if I, if I just do enough good deeds that God would then find approval for me and I'll get myself into heaven. Guys, you and I can't save ourselves. And I don't obey God because I think that I'm going to earn his favor. I don't obey God because somehow out of my obedience he's going to love me more. I obey God as a response and as a sign of worship to what he has done. Because if our righteousness could be earned, then the death of Christ was pointless and certainly was the resurrection. And we have to remember that in Romans 5, it says he demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Right? I don't work to earn his approval. Christ loved me enough to come in the state of my sinfulness to die for me. He's not going to love me anymore. He can't, he can't do anything else. He gave the ultimate. He gave up his life for you and I. And the only way that a sinner finds redemption is through the death of Christ. And so I want us to rethink Thomas here. I want us to take a moment and rethink Thomas. Because the point is not that Thomas doubted. That's so often what we say about him. Doubting Thomas. He refused to believe. No, the point is, is not that Thomas doubted, but that Thomas believed. So maybe we should start calling him believing Thomas instead of doubting Thomas. And if you don't know, let me just give you a little church history. This is not in the scriptures, but this is what church history tells us. That after this, Thomas believed. And along with the disciples at Pentecost, had the power of the Holy Spirit. And he took the command that Christ gave him to go to the ends of the earth preaching his message. And we're told that Thomas went to the area through the Middle East, through the area of Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and then we're told that he went to India. And Thomas began to preach the gospel there. And as he preached the gospel to a, a group of people, they started to believe. 
And the numbers that Thomas preached to grew and grew that placed their faith in Jesus Christ to the point that the local religious leaders were upset with Thomas. And we're told that a local Hindu Brahmin or priest took a spear and ran it through Thomas. And Thomas died for his faith. And he made good on that promise, didn't he? When he said, let us go also that we may die with him. But see, there's a big difference when Thomas dies. Because Thomas died knowing his Savior and knowing eternal life. And so as we celebrate this Sunday, as we celebrate a resurrected Savior, this should be one of hope and joy and celebration. This is, this is the culminating moment of our faith where Jesus dies and he comes back to life and he says, see, it's true. And all of us have the ability to say, my Lord and my God. This is why we celebrate. This is why we have hope. Because death is not the end. We have an eternity that awaits us. And we are blessed for believing in a Christ that we have never physically seen. But there will come a day where you and I will stand and see Him face to face. And we will worship Him. And the glorious kingdoms of heaven with all of the other saints and the angels who parade around in that kingdom. And we will get to say, my Lord and my God, let us celebrate a risen Savior. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We rejoice because the grave could not hold you. No man could keep you, Father. The schemes of Satan sought to hold you down. But Lord, you would not be. And Lord, when you resurrected from the dead, you came to Thomas and you said, you want proof? Here it is, Thomas. And my hope and my desire is that you would believe. And Lord, I pray for, for those that are here. As I said, some of us are somewhere on this scale. Some of us may have heard this message and say, Christ is the furthest thing from my mind. Some of us may be right there on the verge and just aren't quite sure, but, but we want to, Father. And there are some of us that have already embraced who you are. And Lord, my prayer is for those that don't know you, that you would make yourself known through them. Make yourself known to them, Father, in a powerful way that they cannot deny who you are. And Lord, for those of, that are here and those that may hear this message, that are, are in doubt and questioning, that they would find somebody and they would have a conversation and say, explain to me who this Jesus is because I want to believe, but I'm not there. And I pray for those of us who do believe that we would be available with the message on our lips, that our lives evidence a resurrected Savior of hope, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and truth, Father. 
Lord, let this season be a season where your kingdom grows and your glory is had because, God, you deserve each and every moment of our praise from now until the day that we die or you come back and take us home. God, we love you, we thank you, and we celebrate a resurrected Lord. Hallelujah, amen, forever and ever. Amen.